Well, if you are tuning in with us online, and I imagine we've got a few more today, I want to just encourage you to just log in, give an emoji, let us know that you're with us today. Uh, I'm sorry you can't be with us in person, especially for the start of this new series and this new year. Uh, there's something about being present physically that makes a whole world of difference, but I'm sorry you can't be with us today. Um, I want to just start out by asking a question. What is love, actually? There's lots of demonstrations of love. Um, I was tempted during this series to put lots of clips in my favorite Christmas movie, Love, actually. Sorry to disappoint, but I felt like it was a little off-topic and maybe self-indulgent. But what is love, actually? It comes in lots of forms. We've probably delivered it in different forms, and we've probably received it in lots of different ways. Is love something that is just unconditional? Is love something that is tolerant? Is it really just tolerance? Do I just let you get away with anything you feel uh, and call that love? Is love something that comes in the form of mm, discipline or harshness, maybe even correction? <laughs> I was thinking about what love is, and I thought about a shepherd's staff. Good old-fashioned crook. Nothing like I grew up with in the city, but one that you can order at most party supply stores because I thought it was a good analogy for what love actually is. And it takes on different forms in different states along the way. Maybe you can relate to it. But I was thinking of a shepherd's staff as primarily doing three things. And if you've ever participated in the act of parenting, you know this to be true. Um, but if you've ever taken on any kind of leadership role, any kind of... Um, where you're in charge of a team of people, there is some different kinds of expressions of care and concern that you need to demonstrate. So, uh, if we look at a good old-fashioned shepherd's stick, and I think spiritually, as a pastor, I've exercised it this way, but sometimes we're using the stick to guide and direct. It's a directional thing, because sheep kind of want to do their own thing, like herding cats, right? like a bunch of children, or like people who are just admittedly prone to wander. I forget the God I love. And so a staff like this would be used to guide and to goad and to keep the feet moving in the right direction. It would also be something that would be used for kind of a, a rescue and, and, a, and a, a recapture. So like if a, 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 and we're familiar maybe with the story of Jesus leading the 99 to go after the one, where you have this image where this, this, this sheep has fallen down on some rocks and needs something where you could just kind of hook and bring him back. And I would say there are lots of people that I use kind of God's love to reach out to when they don't want to be reached out to. There are prodigals that have walked away for a reason. There are people who are spiritually burnt out or abused that they don't want to turn back to the church because the church doesn't look like a safe place. And what I'm trying to invite people back into is the world that God actually intended. And sometimes we might need to use a shepherd to, to, to do that. So we're guiding, we're, going, we're, we're, we're um, rescuing, but then sometimes it comes in the form of defense and protection, where you have to kind of protect the sheep, maybe separate the sheep from the goats or the sheep from the wolves. Or, um, there, there is a protective or defensive measure, and there have been times 
in my life or even in my parenting that I've wanted to see my kids separate from certain people because I didn't feel like it was healthy for them. I didn't feel like they were safe. And I think this is a great picture of how God's love gets applied to us. We like warm fuzzies. We like open and accepting. Except that's not always how God's love works. Why? Because that love isn't actually transformational. And I want to talk for the next few weeks about what love actually looks like, specifically how we might grow in love as it relates to our relationship, our covenant commitment to the Lord. And so maybe each week we'll just kind of take a a view of this and, and look at But if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open up with me to Luke chapter 5. There's a fascinating passage that I want to peel back a few layers. You're probably familiar with the passage about these guys who lower their friends to get healed into a crowded gathering where Jesus is kind of holding court, but these guys show up and he's a paralytic and he wants to be healed. But in Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 25, I encourage you to follow along. Uh, if you're at home, you can open up the app, or if you're in person, you can open up the app and follow along with some notes. But it says this, One day, as he was teaching, Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, were sitting there. Jesus has drawn a very educated, very learned crowd who are very curious about what his mission is all about. These weren't just peasants. These were educated people who were wanting to learn more about this man, Jesus. And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Now, I don't know if you've ever had that kind of feeling. Probably not. But I think it's worth noting that when Jesus' Spirit lives in us, we also possess that same kind of healing power. And I'm hoping that God would begin to do a healing work in our own lives so that we can be transformed by the love of God as expressed through His body. So, this is what happens. The men carrying a paralytic man on a mat tried to take him into the house and to lay him before Jesus. And when they could not find a way to do this, it was like a packed house party. Because of the crowd, they went on the roof and lowered him in on the mat, threw the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friends, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus knew what they were thinking, and then he asked, Why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Uh, I'm going to say both are impossible, they're really difficult. And, and Jesus says, um, get up and walk, but, but you may know but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up and take your mat and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God, and they were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. There is 
so much here that we need to like unpack for this to really maybe gain traction. Because this is more than a neat party trick. This was something that was the full empowerment of God's love on earth. And it was sort of an unexpected turn. And so, literally, the, this paralyzed guy can't get to Jesus on his own. And even when he's brought within, like, close to Jesus, he can't even get to Jesus within proximity. And what it says was that he's got these friends who spiritually carry him. Do you have people, when you are down, they spiritually carry you? Ideally, our church does that. Ideally, our tribes do that. Ideally, we have people that we're in close community with, spiritually and emotionally, that will carry us through dry, doubtful, discouraging, hard seasons. It's why we come together and pray for one another. It's why we gather to share needs and to actually be known. Because there are seasons where, maybe not today, but you will need to be carried. And this guy can't get to Jesus without his friends, but they spiritually carry him. Or you could say they physically carry him, sure. They're concerned for him, so they make great effort. And then it says they load him down through the tiles. This isn't just a thatched roof. This isn't just like some hut. This is a house with tiles. Imagine I asked you to host a visiting speaker, and, and, and the crowds show up, and then more people want to come, and they start digging a hole in your roof. Does this feel problematic for you? If you're the owner of the home, how excited are you about your hospitality? Except there's nothing mentioned in the story about destruction of property. And when Jesus sees this guy being lowered down, and you have to figure, is it, are they just holding like rope on a, on, on a rug? Is, is, is this some kind of, um, like, like what, what is the, the mechanism for them to lower down? And this is what's fascinating is that Jesus seems really unsurprised or unfazed by it. He's like, oh yeah, this happens to me all the time. I, I, and, he, and he looks at the guy and he takes this like right turn. He goes, oh yeah, buddy, your sins are forgiven. Everyone's thinking, sins are great, but you could probably use his legs. Just the same. That would feel good too. And Jesus goes this other direction. Now, let's just pause here because this is setting up what I really want us to understand. is that we know very little about the paralyzed man. There's not a biography about him. In fact, we could say there's two things. He's paralyzed. He can't walk. And he's got really good mates. He's got good friends who are spiritually, physically, emotionally invested in him. And Jesus never even acknowledges that we have a record of the, the quality of the friendship. I, I think a little recognition might be in order, but he does, it does say it's sees the faith of them. He doesn't talk about their compassion, their loyalty, their personal sacrifice, their, 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 their love for their friends. Jesus stays laser-focused on the paralytic man, and he heals them. As well as forgives them of his sin. And this is where I think we need to understand that it wasn't the faith of the paralyzed man that healed himself. It was his friends. What we have is a very beautiful picture of an individual being healed by community. And this is really 
important. This is the essence of why we choose to walk in a disciplined relationship with church, with a spiritual gathering of people. Not an event that we attend, but in something that we share this mutual interest because an individual does not heal themselves. An individual is healed by community. Sometimes it's a medical community. Sometimes it's a spiritual community. But healing is always going to come from an external source because that's how God is going to work in our lives. Why church? Because I need parts of my life healed. I need, I need someone to lean on, right? Because I'm going through life limping along given the circumstances of each day. And this becomes the great metaphor for how we come into relationship with God's people. So the point is that we all need um, a community for our faith to grow. You've heard me say that faith doesn't grow in isolation. And what this really is, is a huge, big, fat indictment over the American religious landscape. Because we have so transformed American religion into individual and private. Like, that's, that's my business. Um, that's something that God is doing to save me. And as long as I have a relationship with God, as long as I pray, then I don't need to be a part of church. To which I would say, you're missing the point entirely because healing happens uh, within community. And so biblically, faith, whenever you read through covenant relationship, you always have to understand that faith was always a communal proposition. It was a part of the collective. It was never about an individual private religion. It was something shared. So when God spoke blessing, it was a shared blessing. So when God spoke prosperity, it was also supposed to be a shared prosperity. That's what's so problematic is when you have growing classes of people where there's further and further uh, equity and equality between income levels. God wanted to bring this sort of prosperity to all people. Now, uh, biblically, faith has always been this kind of communal or collective act, which involves both getting pushed and pulling your weight. If you want a good definition of what it means to be in community, if you need a community that's going to push you to make you better, but it's going to be require something of you to pull people others along. That's how community works, because there's a level of commitment to both give and receive. And this is where healing and transformation happens in community. So there's this article that came out, and it was not revolutionary, but it's by Globe and Mail, which is one of the big news outlets out of Canada. It would be maybe their New York Times or something like that. But they had this survey that they conducted, and their conclusion within this survey was sociologists discover that resilience and transformation are never a self-help proposition. In fact, the survey concluded that there was this proportional relationship between personal success and intentional community. What does that mean? It means that if you want to go at your goals and ambition and your life alone, good luck. If you want to link up with other people, you probably succeed. That's how this thing works. So what I like to say about the church and about your life is how you parent, how you choose to be married, 
how you choose to grow your own resources and steward your own influence, or how you choose to exercise faith, it's always it's better as a team sport. That's how God designed it. And we have this beautiful picture of these great friends getting no acknowledgement, luring in, and Jesus healed them. Something that guy couldn't experience on his own, but God invites all of us to be sort of sideline players, luring them in to give them exposure to Jesus. That's the church. You get healed within community. Now, just as an aside, because it's a little indulgent for me, verse 26, the last verse I read, and there, this guy said, I don't know how many of you love paradoxes. Uh, you know what a paradox is. It's something that we, that we kind of acknowledge. It's a statement that seems to contradict, but inevitably, or, or uh, is, is actually true. So you understand paradoxes. Listen to the paradox. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. The word remarkable is the Greek word paradoxus. We've seen a paradox today. What's the paradox here? We've got educated, learned religious leaders who are wondering how this guy can actually... They know two things. Humans don't, can't uh, have the authority to forgive sins. And number two, paralyzed people don't walk. And what has happened to this day? A guy gets forgiven and he gets up and walks. It's a paradox. And this is what I think is starting to speak to our own lives. The educated in this story are actually the fools. And the ones, these, these sort of anonymous friends, are the ones with profoundly deep faith. I love that. I love that. As they're strapping this guy together, like, how are we going to get in to see him? Look at the crowd. I, mean, I, I, I don't think there was, like, a master plan. I don't think this was a well-thought-through thing. And that's how God is going to work through you and us. If we just keep doing what we know to do, believing that God's going to meet us in the middle of just showing up. Hmm. I have to tell you a story, uh, and some of you might be familiar with this, but uh, I, I have this uh, little vial that I keep on my key ring, and um, I just, you know, I like to anoint people. It's just a biblical precedence. It says, call the elders of the church. And if someone is sick, need a healing, so in my spiritual practice, that if I show up to a hospital or if my kids are sick before I turn to children's Tylenol, I'm like, you're getting anointed. You know, uh, if you're going out and being sent out, you're getting anointed. This is just a biblical precedence, nothing magical, but it's something I do. Uh, on my November visit to see my dad, who is largely not the same person that I grown up with, and we're all kind of grieving what is our new normal. And um, I spent four days there. Thursday, I was going to be flying out that night. I said, Mom, um, I think we should pray for Dad. Oh, David, that would be wonderful. Can we, yes, can we do that? No, one, no one's actually laid hands and prayed for Dad yet. So I um, do my anointing thing, pray over him. We get in the car, and we're driving to the airport. And my mom says something to me in a very reflective way. And you have to understand, both my mom's parents died very young um, before I was born. Uh, her mom was in uh, her, her late 50s, and her dad was in her uh, early 60s. So it's just terrible. Um, but she said, 
And so we're, we're just driving, and my mom starts thinking out loud, and she says, David, when you pray, it reminds me so much of your, my dad. What a nice thing to say, even though I don't really know exactly, because I never met the man. He had had a dramatic conversion experience to Christ. When I was walking in downtown Oslo, Norway, uh, my uncle David said, oh, this bar right here, this is where your grandpa Hoken was a bouncer at. And he was this big, burly-chested guy, very worldly. He was a card player. He was a pool star, but he was a big drinker. And when he came to Christ, uh, he put all that stuff off. So there was, coffee was a social drink of choice in our home. We didn't touch alcohol. And it was just, it was this, I was lost, now I'm found. And um, as mom was reflecting on this to me, she goes, my, my dad could always have such a way of expressing himself with the Lord, and it's, we do that so well. He couldn't do it when he used English, but in his native Norwegian, it was just so fluent with God. And I said, honestly, Mom, and this is me being frustrated, this is me just being honest, I wish I could see more results, and, and I would trade that for eloquence any day of the week. If I could experience more power and ROI in my prayers, I'll give that for being able to articulate a good prayer. She goes, David, I remember when I was four years old before the war, I had an infection, and to this day, it was a groin infection. I still have a scar there, but it was infected and it was seeping. You could see pus. And, and she said, I remember my dad carrying me. It's one of my earliest but most vivid memories. And we went to the doctor's door, and we were standing at the door, and the door never opened. And I said, well, did Grandpa never knock, or did he just turn away? He goes, I don't know, but I asked him, what happened? He says, I felt like I needed to trust the Lord to bring your healing. So I prayed over you, and you were healed. And he says, David, this is what you need to remember. Is that it wasn't my faith that healed me. It was the faith of my dad that healed me. See, here's the thing. I'm the pastor, but sometimes I need your faith to heal me. I need your faith to encourage me. I need your faith to grow a church. I need your faith to move into a discipleship lifestyle. I can't do it all, but I need a community of faith. It's us. It's us. Individuals don't heal themselves. It's only when we covenant together in Christ's name that the transformation begins. So the point is that he is he is belonging to a community, belonging to a community in this case, like in this story, belonging to the community of faith is better than the sum of its parts, right? So us together have strong faith. Us apart, <laughs> good luck, uh, given the day, right? Given the circumstances, given the challenges. But us together, faith becomes whole. Not perfect, but whole. That's what the church was supposed to do. And so I want to talk just in these closing minutes about what belonging looks like. And I sat down with a friend of mine who's been a dear friend for about 15 years. He has a Master's of Divinity degree and a PhD. He's one of these guys that whenever he starts talking, I just pull out my notepad and start writing. I want to hear what he's just like thinking off the top of his head. 
His name is Dr. Derek McNeil. He was seminary president in Seattle, and he was talking about this small seminary that he was trying to cultivate, not just lead academically, not just qualify for, for grants and, 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 and finances, but he said, David, I'm trying to create a sense of belonging. And so these are his words to me. He says, belonging for us is like the front door. Now, I would say, just as an aside, I think most of us are looking for belonging at the end game. We want to be where someone knows my name and takes care of me. No, no, no. This is what my friend is saying. Belonging is really the front door for walking into community and being in relationship, right? And he says that it's where we all begin. So, for instance, more than anything, I wanted my kids to know from the earliest of ages that they belong to us, Laurel and I, and the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that, that they are his and ours, so that their security, their identity, was never going to be in question. Imagine starting with that level of acceptance in life, where you don't have to wonder if you're loved, wonder if you're accepted, wonder if there's going to be people there for you. And so, uh, then he says this, but once you live with us, you also learn to help. You learn to serve. And you learn to share in the chores. See, it's like some adolescent kid who never even has to think about helping out around the house. Right? That, that would be nonsense. Belonging, uh, and so he, he asked the question, he says, everyone, once you find belonging, you, you learn to find your role. And he says, your role helps define your purpose. We're all in need of making our life purposeful, meaningful. But it's only until we find our role within the community. It's realizing that we simply can't thrive by being the center of our own lives as consumers who give without sacrifice, who give at any convenience. Imagine parenting without sacrifice. Imagine parenting only when it was convenient or comfortable. Now we have a better picture of what it means to belong to Christian community. Simply put, we need to figure out how to love one another better. This is what this is. So when I covenant to Christ, I'm also, by implication, covenanting with each of you. That's what we get to share together. Belonging isn't simply being a part of a group that knows each other's names. Belonging is where we come. Because simply, you can feel included, but not valued. And that's an important distinction to make. And so part of belonging means making other people feel valued. How do we bring you in on a deeper level? Well, I have to say, I need help. I need to be able to care and to give of myself. That's the way community flourishes and functions. And he said this, belonging, David, is like our deepest need. He said, I belong to you. I mean, this is an African-American man who's got way more education than me, way more life experience than me. He grew up in inner city Philadelphia, and he's looking at me across the table, and he says, I belong to you, and you belong to me. We belong to each other. You understand what we're saying here? Belonging means that we're mutually invested, sacrificially, in each other's lives. And this is what I think Jesus meant for us to be the church. 
say coming to church is not only like coming into, it's, it's, it's identifying that, that you find people further along in marriage, in parenting, in faith, in career. But it's also you finding people that you can bring them. That's what it means to be a community of faith. It's what it means to be for us as a church to love one another. And that's why independence and individualism are so contrary to Christian salvation and the church. This week, I had, a, uh, I had an encounter. I, I was shopping for my son's birthday, and I ran into this shop, and um, I'm looking at this kid. kid. He's my son's age, so he's like 22. And I look at this kid, and I said, it's familiar. And, um, you know, I'm wearing a mask, and I said, hey, I'm looking at this thing. I wonder if you can help it. I'm sorry, could you tell me your name? And he tells me his name. And right away I remembered and I said his last name. And he goes, yeah. And I pulled down my mask. I go, I'm David Sunday. I'm Gurren Sunday's dad. I don't know if you remember me or him. Who thought you looked familiar? And it was this, I mean, this kid moved here in first grade in 2006, right when we moved here. And our kids played in recess every day because they were the two new kids who moved in from out of state. And so it was kind of a fun reunion. Now, as they got older and they established themselves, they kind of went their different ways, and he got into his sport, and my son got into his sport. So we really haven't talked for, I don't know, since fifth grade or whatever. But I remember when his parents came here, they moved from Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And they were uh, at an art gallery. An art gallery in Jackson Hole, Wyoming is no joke, in case you don't know. And so they're kind of creative, and they're doing well. And, you know, it was an interesting lifestyle that kind of intrigued me. Well, I remember having these run-ins with them and, and having these encounters and hearing about this kid at school. So I said, well, what do you do now? He says, well, I, I, I'm at UT and I'm studying pre-law. I was like, ah, where do you think you want to go to law school? Thinking he'd say, oh, yeah, I'll go to UT or Baylor. Well, I'll, I'll probably go to one of the Ivy Leagues. And I told my son about this encounter and he goes, oh, yeah. He's one of these kids that's effortlessly smart. It's like I don't have to try and I just nail it every time. He'll go to an Ivy League. He'll go to a top 14 law school without trying. I was like, wow. So he comes from a family of means. He's just good-looking, long hair, like, and he's bright as all get out. And I said, well, I remember you guys had a place in, in, in Wyoming, and you got it. No, 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 that's long gone. Well, are your parents still living here in Austin? And he goes, yeah, yes. Yes, they are. And I Oh, I, I, it was like this disgust came out. And, and I, I, before I could ask, he goes, he just starts telling on his family. We're in the middle of this story, and he says, well, like when I was 16, my mom, I said, did they get remarried? He says, well, my mom got remarried and had this, I have a sister now, and I'm 16, and now I've got this sister, and she lives not far from where we moved uh, on, off of Westlake Drive. And then uh, my dad, He's on his third wife. Well, actually, he's well, he's, he's with his girlfriend, but they've had a kid, so they're living in, in Dripping, and, and, and you can just hear. And this is the cry of our, of our culture. Every institution has disappointed. The institution of marriage, the institution of church, the institution of family, um, government, and I'm looking at this kid who's got everything going for him, except you can tell he's disgusted. And I said, hey, 
where would you, where would you see like home for you now at this point in your faith? My apartment on West Campus, and I, I couldn't stop thinking about them all week. And the question I kept thinking is, how do you break the cycle of just depravity? How do you break the cycle to give this kid hope? Will he land on his feet? Yes. Will he make a good income? Yes. Will he get married? Yes. Will he sustain any of it? Who knows? But how does he have any hope in the, in the idea of marriage or in the idea of church? This guy is completely lost because the whole family is completely lost. And if I look at our lives and how we've grown up together, I thought, this is a tragedy. This was never the world that God intended. And just by dealing with it ourselves in isolation and in independence and in individualism, there is not something transformation. We're only headed towards the tragic. And the only way that this guy can experience healing is that he finds salvation in Christ alone. Because only in Christ can he be, can all of these terrible things that God never intended be redeemed, be restored, be healed. That he can actually now see the world is not an end in itself. I was created with eternity in mind. Why do we need church? Because I can't navigate this alone, and there needs to be something about my life that's rooted in something more hopeful and less temporal. And I have got to surrender my individualism to say, I'm committed to being a part of a community because when I am weak, I need you to be strong. And when you're going to be weak, I'm going to come alongside of you. You've got my word. That's what we do. That's how to church. That's why we're here. So loving one another is how we find belonging. 